welcome to the Poetry Exchange. I'm Fiona Bennett. And I'm Michael Schaefer. Lovely to see you, Michael, in the actual person. We're we, in the same room. We're actually seeing each other in the flesh. It's like the old days, Fee. We used to, we used to get together and record these voiceovers. I know. Here in Poetry Exchange Towers all those years ago. It's so great, isn't it? And we've even actually, we've got a bit of something on the go, haven't we, Michael? We, we, should, we, we should confess. We've got some fizz, got, got a couple of glass of bubbles. It, it is the festive period after all. I arrived here laden with Christmas shopping. You were like something out of a Dickens character, <laughs> I must say. I thought any minute now he'll pull a pork pie from a bag or some such thing. And we'll be there. With, I, I should have given you a mince pie by now, but I've not. Yeah. Okay, we'll get to that after. It's not good to have a mince pie before doing a voiceover. Exactly right. That's the only reason I haven't given you one. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Well, really lovely, really lovely to see you. It's... Bitterly cold outside, isn't it? It is in this in this in this nation. In London, it's bitterly yeah. cold in many ways. Mm. I can attest to it from my train journey today. But let us not speak of these things. Yeah. Well, Michael, I think we don't need to hang around too much because there is actually just a feast to lay upon our listeners in this episode. So we should get on with things because we did break, or at least our visitor broke a rule, in inverted commas, that we have, which is that we usually ask people not to bring a too long poem. Yeah. A sort of 40 line, sort of approximate, sort of limit. That's it. It's more of a guideline that we offer to to, to our guests, isn't it? 40, 60 lines, something like that. So just an awareness that a long poem's gonna, you know, presents certain challenges. But on this occasion, we were very happy to make an exception, partly because We've got such an exceptional guest. Yes, indeed. And partly because it's one of those poems. That was the phrase I used to you earlier, and mm. it, it sort of is, isn't it? It's certainly one I'd heard of, mm. but I didn't know. Yes, and in listening back, as I have been doing, Michael, both to our guest reading the poem and indeed to the gift reading, which in fact I'm not giving anything away by saying you made, yeah. um, I also realised how much which of course is something that's central to us in what we're doing it's central to poetry generally and many of our listeners it is a poem that benefits from being listened to it's actually a poem that it's beautiful to have read to you i realized as i was listening back i enjoyed both of you reading it to me as i listened back i felt i was in that place of being read to in the most lovely way that's really interesting actually Faye. i was just thinking about how how much I got from the process of reading it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I maybe had a couple of goes, but there was something about, um, I, I, I was sort of able to get inside it in a different way and understand it and take different things from it and connect with it mm-hmm. in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I had heard actually, I say I didn't know this poem, I had heard it, I had read it, and for whatever reason, it just, kind of went over my head or it just passed me by in some Mm. way Mm. and mostly as a result of trying to trying to produce a reading of it for our guest as a gift I found I was really able to get it and I was like oh wow it's brilliant actually Mm. (laughs) and so it's uh, that was a real pleasure that's lovely Mm. and that is I think often what we experience and we hope our listeners get to experience too is that in a way that's the whole idea of the gift exchange is that in echoing the poem back in the light of the conversation we've had 
something new comes through for us and we hope also for you, our listeners. So let's not shilly-shally about. (laughs) No, so you're going to be hearing myself and Fiona talking about the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot, the poem that's been a friend to Ella. With the rule-breaking choice of poem that you've (laughs) chosen to bring to us, which I was delighted to see. Uh, You know, there is special, one makes special dispensation for rule-breakers and in your case and in the case of your choice. (laughs) I thought, ah, well, I do understand the need to break that rule for that poem. So, but I think it would be great to hear, hear it all, do you not, Michael? Yeah, definitely. So I think we'd just love you just to give it a read for us and then uh, settle in together. Okay. Sorry it's so long. You sitting comfortably. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent, to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask what is it. Let us go and make our visit. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains. Let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time, to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There'll be time to murder and create. And time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me. And time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed there will be time to wonder, do I dare? And do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. For I have known them all, already known them all. I've known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? And I have known the eyes, already known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase, 
And when I am formulated sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt-ends of my days and ways? And how should I presume? And I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight downed with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Ones that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl. And should I then presume? And how should I begin? Should I say I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. And in the afternoon, the evening sleeps so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, stretched on the floor, here beside you and me. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet. And here's no great matter. I've seen the moment of my greatness flicker. And I've seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And would it have been worth it after all? After the cups, the marmalade, the tea. Among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me. Would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile. To have squeezed the universe into a ball to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. If one settling a pillow by her head should say, that is not what I meant at all, that is not it at all. And would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worthwhile after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets? After the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor, and this, and so much more. It is impossible to say just what I mean. But as if a magic lantern threw the nerves in patterns on a screen. Would it have been worthwhile, if one settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl, and turning towards the window should say, That is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all. No. I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I'm an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious and meticulous, full of high sentence but a bit obtuse, at times, indeed, almost ridiculous, almost at times. The fool. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I've seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back. When the wind blows the water white and black, 
We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown. Till human voices wake us and we drown. Brilliant. I have come across this poem before, in fact. We did this process at a college once and um, a young man brought it in and he, he was so passionate about it. And I was going, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. And I, like, I didn't feel I could say to him, I don't get it. I think I'm starting to understand it a bit, but I'd be really fascinated to just hear from you first perhaps about how you first came across this poem, how and why it speaks to you and what it is for Mm. you. I think what you just said is really important in that I think quite often we feel that we're supposed to understand poetry or a poem um, and that if we don't, then it's our problem. (laughs) And I don't think it is uh, your problem if you're finding it more difficult to sort of connect with this poem. And I think that people have that with a lot of Eliot's work, in particular, The Wasteland, which has lots of these sort of intertextual uh, references. And this has a bit, I mean, it starts with a paragraph in Italian with no translation, which, if anything's going to make you feel slightly shut out of a poem, um, if you don't speak Italian, then, then uh, yeah, a paragraph from Dante would probably do it. But um, I remember coming across this, I just moved up to London. I just started a BA in English and Creative Writing at Goldsmiths. And... I think this was one of maybe one of the first poems that we studied. And I was really struck by how drawn in I was and how unlikely some of the language was, how modern it felt. I know that it's a modernist poem, but modern, how contemporary maybe I should say it felt. And how connected I felt to this sort of strange, uptight, um, I don't know if I'm talking about Prufrock or Eliot, I think they're, they're both sort of present here. This sort of uptight, I mean, man in his 20s, um, in the 20s, 1920s. And the fact that I sort of felt connected to this voice, I think I was really surprised by. There's something about the turn of phrase, maybe, of this character of this voice that is kind of beguiling. Absolutely. And I think that because, you know, I found myself in London in a city for the first time, and this feels like a a poem that is in part set in the city and yet ends at the ocean, which is where I'm from. I'm from Cornwall. I think that those worlds for me were there. And then it's like this sort of weary, lonesome voice, (laughs) this sort of massive longing. Uh, And I think in your 20s, everything feels acute and painful and not you know there's joy but it's like sort of also painful joy it's like sort of ecstatic loneliness or love or whatever it is I can sort of see myself that age having read this poem and maybe waking up after a heavy night out and thinking I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas (laughs) like I don't know what that means I don't know what Eliot will have meant by that but I know what it means to me And I know that it connects deeply to that feeling that people call the fear now, you know, where you wake up and you sort of replay everything that you've said the night before. I guess I really got from it a sense of of this guy using all these words to describe his own kind of inarticulacy, in a way. Mm -hmm. It's like he's reaching for something all the time somehow in it. And he kind of gets there a bit where, he's, where he says, it is impossible to say just what I mean. Uh, th- that is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all, <laughs> you know. 
Yeah, I think there's this sort of massive feeling of the inexpressible. We don't know what this overwhelming question is that he keeps trying to sort of drive at. For me, there's a sort of a romantic frustration behind it, but also kind of something more existential to do with. I've seen my greatness flicker and I've seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. That's such a great line. (laughs) I was really struck by that when you read it, actually. Some of the images are just fantastic, aren't they? Yeah, it's a poem of many iconic lines. The I have measured out my life with coffee spoons has become like a sort of totem for coffee shots now, which is um, <laughs> funny, but like um, it's it's something that completely makes sense and sort of feels new, but also very familiar. I think a lot of the stuff in this poem does. And even when it gets sort of really high and sort of intellectualised, I think that the poem is almost sort of laughing at its own posturing. There's vanity there. There's this sort of, with the bald spot in the middle of my head and the, the, the sort of idea of those quotes from people, how his arms and legs are thin, alongside this voice that's sort of saying, I am Lazarus come from the dead. And I think that for me that felt really sort of true and self-aware. Yes, the self-awareness is really interesting in this, isn't it? I'm not Prince Hamlet nor was meant to be. You know, I'm, I'm a supporting player, he almost seems to be <laughs> suggesting. You know, he's not painting himself as the hero of this. It is witty, isn't it? Mm. He, he, he's sort of playfully putting himself down a bit there, I think, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. Um, and then that bit that follows, I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Um, it's such a lovely little couplet. And then that, um, shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? And it's sort of like, is it a young old man or is it an old young man? It's really interesting. That is really interesting because I was thinking, you know, the kind of, there's a strangeness about this kind of, I guess the whole kind of warp of a youthful perspective or a wise perspective or an experienced perspective. And those things come somehow kind of actually being just collided together into this kind of non-linear you know, you could be in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your, you could be 86. The nonlinear thing, I think, is really what's at the heart of the structure of this poem, because it makes its own rules. It's not a sort of verse form, but it has these sort of refrains that repeat um, in the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo, for example. But the movement between the different sections, I mean, we keep returning to like, there will be time, there will be time. And then that is not it at all. That is not it at all. All of those sort of lovely sonic things that come up. But to go from this beginning that's so famous, let us go then you and I when the evening is spread out against the sky, it sets up like it's going to be a sort of rhyming poem all the way through, like a patient etherized upon a table completely undercuts that. It feels so jarring the first time you read it. He's constantly, I think, surprising us with the form of the stanzas, with the rhythm of the stanzas. I find that so exciting. It's constantly kind of making you go, what? What? Mm. What? You know, which is just just like it's opening all the time. It keeps opening instead of closing. It's, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? As we're talking about it, I'm getting this sense of this guy who's sort of he's it's like he's trapped in his head do i dare it, it comes up several times earlier in the poem and then of course he returns to it towards the end do i dare eat a peach he's kind of scared he's scared of taking action mm. and that of course then makes sense of the hamlet 
yeah. reference, but actually he's saying, but I'm not Hamlet. It's like he's constantly doubting himself. I am no prophet and he is no great matter. He's undercutting himself and uh, he, he's got no confidence in himself, has he? No, no, he really doesn't. And Prufrock as a voice lacks confidence, is sort of constantly frustrated by this inability to act. You can kind of almost see him in these, I don't know if it's a museum setting because of the women talking about Michelangelo or because there's teacups and, and tea and ices, maybe he's at house, maybe both. I think there are sort of simultaneous spaces here. But you can almost see him sort of like checking out women, like staring at their arms so closely that he can see the soft hair and that sort of sexual frustration of him not, he doesn't approach anyone. He doesn't ask the question. The way he leads us at the end, he doesn't allow there to be any resolve. It's sort of, we're suddenly pulled into this almost romantic poem, suddenly with the mermaids singing each to each. It almost feels like a completely different poem. Mm. And I think so, there's this lack of confidence of the speaker, but complete confidence of the poet, I think, to it, it takes a lot of confidence to end a poem without resolving the whole sort of conceit of the poem that you've built up. And the penultimate verse is a single line. It's the only time mm -hmm. he uses a single line verse. I do not think that they will sing to me. Uh, yeah, it's uh, an extraordinary poem. And that do I dare to eat a peach is placed with the same sort of weight as the like, do I dares, do I dares before? Mm. And the, you know, do I dare disturb the universe? But also do I dare to eat a peach? And then the line on its own is, it sort of reminds me of that earlier line with, um, and in short, I was afraid. It feels so authentic. I know we, we're not supposed to conflate the speaker and the poet, but it feels so authentically, sort of painfully true or honest that it, yeah, it feels completely human to me anyway. And, and it's so definite. Everything else is, should I, would I, could it be, whatever. But then there's this, I do not think that they will. Mm. It's a kind of very particular formulation of a negative, isn't it? Yeah, nice. I, I've said this on the podcast and to Fiona on several occasions, but I find that there are certain times when lines of poems will just sort of come to me, you know, as I'm going about my life or whatever I'm doing. Does that happen with this poem for you? And if so, what are, the, what are those bits? There's loads. I love that um, feeling. And I also think that those are the moments when you begin to understand a poem. And for this one, there are different lines that resonate at different times of my life. So I think that there were times when I would walk around the city and it would be sunset and I'd think of the patient etherized upon a table. Also, this idea, I used to find it really fascinating, this um, re restless nights in one night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. I, uh, I teach in Hoban and my I walk from Charing Cross and I weave past all of the people like queuing up for the theatre and everyone excitedly out and in restaurants it's an evening class and on my way back it's slightly emptier it's like 10 o'clock there's like the last people in the restaurants um, the theatres are sort of sweeping up or whatever and I, I get that feeling of the sawdust restaurants with oyster shells those, those sort of like ends of things the ends of those nights out and the sort of seediness, which is delicious. I don't think he's judging in this poem. I think the the cheap hotels, the one night cheap hotels, are just like a sort of aspect that gives colour to the to the city. The pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas is my like hangover line. That's my like little motto that I carry. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
there's lo- there's loads yeah but do i dare to eat a peach i think that every time i eat a peach it seems to me that that's one of the ways in which poems can kind of act as friends in as much as they sort of accompany us throughout our lives and on our adventures and in particular moments as you've just expressed so nicely if you were to try to characterize this poem as a friend um what what sort of a friend would it be it's that friend um who he's sweet and um sort of nerdy and passionate and sort of reads a lot and gets very sort of worked up about a certain thing then feels embarrassed um and he's always been in love with you but he's never said oh wow oh T.S. Eliot, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. In the room the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs it back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from the chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed there will be time, for the yellow smoke that slides along the street rubbing its back upon the window panes, there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you, and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions, and for a hundred visions and revisions, before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed there will be time to wonder, do I dare, and do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair With a bald spot in the middle of my hair They will say, how his hair is growing thin My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin My necktie rich and modest but asserted by a simple pin They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. 
for I have known them all already, known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons, I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room, so how should I presume? And I have known the eyes already, known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the buttons of my days and ways? And how should I presume? And I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight downed with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl. And should I then presume? And how should I begin? Shall I say I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt-sleeves leaning out of windows? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. And the afternoon, the evening, sleeps so peacefully, smothered by long fingers, Asleep, tired, or it malingers, Stretched on the floor here beside you and me. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, Have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted, Wept and prayed, though I have seen my head, grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. And would it have been worth it, after all? After the cups, the marmalade, the tea, Among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, Would it have been worth while to have bitten off the matter with a smile, To have squeezed the universe into a ball, To roll it towards some overwhelming question, To say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to Tell you all, I shall tell you all. If one settling a pillow by her head should say, That is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. And would it have been worth it? After all, would it have been worthwhile, after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, after the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor, and this and so much more? It is impossible to say just what I mean, 
But as if a magic lantern threw the nerves in patterns on a screen, would it have been worthwhile if one settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl and turning toward the window should say, that is not it at all, that is not what I meant at all. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I'm an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times, indeed, almost ridiculous, almost, at times, the fool. I grow old, I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing, each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea, by sea-girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown, till human voices wake us and we drown. That was Michael at the end with the gift reading there. Our thanks to Ella Frears for a fabulous conversation. Yeah. It was one of those ones for me which despite it being through technology, I actually felt so much atmosphere and uh, so much wonder, I think. And yeah, kind of really wonderful combination of a really keen eye to the sort of structure and the poem in its forms, but also to its just kind of wild imagining and all that that is. And uh, yeah, it kind of really gave me a whole new connection to that poem. It was absolute joy. Yeah, I really love that world he conjures. Mm -hmm. There's something really uh, evocative about it. Mm. Also, just to say, if you've not come across Ella Frears before, she's the most fantastic young poet. Uh, her debut collection was called Shine Darling, published by Offered Road Books. It was a Poetry Book Society recommendation and was shortlisted for both the Forward Prize for Best First Collection and, ironically enough, the T.S. Eliot Prize <laughs> for Poetry. And her latest pamphlet is called I Am the Mother Cat and that's out with Rough Trade Books. And we must also give our thanks to Dartington Trust who, in fact, as it were, kind of brought Ella to us or connected us up with Ella. Uh, where she is currently writer-in-residence at Dartington Trust Gardens. I'm aware that I think she's running a course 
there in February in 2023. So um, go and check out the details for that too. So uh, we'll put some links in the description and you can find all that there. So Michael, it's coming towards the turning of the year, another extraordinary year yeah. in the Poetry Exchange journey, as well as many other things in your year, I'm aware of, a busy year for you, a busy year for me. Yeah. I was listening the other day to a radio programme and they were doing that thing of, you know, best book of the year. Mm. And I was thinking, gosh, best poetry book of the year. Mm. What am I going to say about that if I was, if, you know, I was suddenly yeah. thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. Faye, um, what's, your, what's, your, what's your best poetry book of 2022? So I think I'd have to say it's Claire Shaw's amazing collection with a brilliant title, which is Towards a General Theory of Love. Ooh. Now you see, you want to buy that book, don't you? Immediately. And you should, and you should do so from Blood Axe Books. Claire Shaw. Claire Shaw. There you that go. sounds great. We'll put, uh, we'll, we'll put a link in the description. I have got you a little seasonal gift, and rest assured, Fiona, there is a gift receipt inside, because that's a tricky thing to buy you, poetry, right? But we'll see. That's Listeners, we'll, we'll tell you how that goes next month. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much. She's, well, she's looking worried now, I can tell you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Should well, we leave it there, Fee? I think with that great bumper edition. There you go. Uh, I think that's it. We'll all head into uh, the turning of the year and um, we'll look forward immensely to being back in 2023 with more Poems as Friends. Thank you for listening. <laughs> so cheesy, it's brilliant. <laughs> Oh, it's going to be done.